This is the Sound School Podcast, with the backstory to great audio storytelling. I'm Rob Rosenthal. My thanks to the good people at PRX and Transom for supporting this podcast for so many years. If you don't mind, I'm going to get a little personal on this episode. February marks an important anniversary for me. It was in February of 2013, 10 years ago this month, that I met Sherry Nielsen, my birth mother, or as she and I sometimes joke, my first mother. I was placed for adoption in 1962 in Chicago, and for years and years and years, I never had any interest in finding my birth parents. Never thought twice about it, actually. Even when my adoptive parents offered to help me search, I told them, thanks, but no thanks. Then I had kids of my own. I'd look across the table at them and think, who are you exactly? (laughs) Not because they were doing some weird kid thing. It's because I didn't know my birth parents. I couldn't look into my daughter's eyes and see the past. On top of that, without knowing my birth parents, I didn't have a complete picture of my health history. What should I be concerned about? What about my kids? So I started searching, and long story short, and I mean long, I located Sherry. I mailed her a letter, a dear birth mom sort of letter, and I waited to hear back. I'd go to the mailbox every day. Is there a letter? Did she write? Nothing. A month or so later, she sent me an email. I guess you could call it a dear son sort of letter. I actually carry it with me in my wallet all the time. Here, let me get it out. I'm not making this up. It's I printed it out, and it's in my, it's in my wallet. I've actually had to reprint it a couple of times because it's worn out. Um, here's what she wrote at the end. It's the last paragraph. There's so much more to say, so much to share, and I'm so excited knowing that it will all happen soon. But I could not let another day go by without responding, at least to say these words I feared I might never speak. Yes, I am your birth mother, Rob. There is no doubt. Much love, Sherry. Ah. We started up email correspondence. We emailed maybe a few more times. Then we met in person, like I said, in February of 2013. I can't even begin to tell you how incredible that meeting was. The reunion bubble, we call it, because nothing else mattered. We sat on her back patio and shut out the rest of the world for two and a half days, and we talked about everything, everything, no holds barred. She shared her full story with me about the circumstances that led to my adoption and how she was young and poor and lacked support from family, about the five more children she had, my half-brothers and sisters. Turns out I was the oldest of six. (laughs) Crazy. Of course, I told her about me. I told her about Herb and Barb, my adoptive parents who died long ago, and my sister Pam, who also had passed away, and of course, my two kids. Chelsea and Gwen, her granddaughters. I showed her pictures of me as a kid with my buck teeth and stupid cowlick on my forehead and freckles. She just cooed and she cried and she told me how guilty she felt. What kind of mother gives up their child? She asked me that several times. I think she was asking the universe too. I held her hand and told her the answer to that question is a mother. You did the most motherly thing you could do for me. You looked at your situation, decided you wouldn't be able to provide for me, 
And despite everything in your body that said, keep him, you instead let me go and you set me on a different path. So meeting my birth mother was the exact right thing to do. I learned more about, sorry. I learned more about who I was and where I came from. I learned my health history, of course. Things are looking good. Um, And most importantly, despite all the time that had passed and the remarkably different lives we had led, we were mother and son instantly. So on the first anniversary of meeting Sherry, I marked the occasion on Sound School by featuring a documentary about adoption. Hold on. And I'm going to do the same today on our 10th anniversary. The doc is called Dear Birth Mother. It's the story of Suzanne, a single white woman in her 40s who adopts transracially. The story earned a Best Documentary Award from the Third Coast Festival, and rightfully so. Now, of course, since this is a podcast about audio storytelling and not my personal life, I should say something about the production of the piece. And one thing that struck me, aside from the remarkable access and the incredible scenes, was the lack of music. I think it's really unusual for a 30-minute long documentary to not use music to mark scene changes or to signify the passing of time or to let a thought breathe. The lack of music is even more unusual given that the producers are Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister. They often use music in their work. In fact, at one point in their careers, Dan and Elizabeth produced a series of incredibly interesting documentaries where they collaborated with the musicians who not only wrote music for the pieces, but they also wrote and sang lyrics to help tell the story. as a highly unusual approach. I think the lack of music in this case works. In fact, I think it's refreshing to hear something run this long without music. So many stories are overscored these days. I sometimes wonder if I'm listening to an album that happens to have some audio stories mixed in rather than the other way around. And I think it's worth paying attention to transitions in the piece. For instance, how does the story move from one scene to another without music? Well, here's the documentary, Dear Birth Mother. It's produced in 2005 by Elizabeth Meister and Dan Collison. Ever since she was a little girl, Suzanne knew she wanted to be a mother. But when she turned 40, she was still single. So she opted for artificial insemination and then in vitro fertilization. None of the procedures worked. So in her mid-40s, she decided to adopt. Suzanne, who was white, was open to adopting an African-American baby. It's called transracial adoption. Producers Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister followed Suzanne through the adoption process. And this is her story. It's called Dear Birth Mother, and it was produced in association with Chicago Public Radio. Dear Birth Mother, writing a letter to someone who could change my life so dramatically is scary, to say the least. But nowhere near as scary as the task I know you face in choosing a future for your child. I'll start by introducing myself. I'm Suzanne. I was blessed. I wrote this letter to an audience of women I haven't met. Women who will use this letter to help them decide if I'm the best person to raise their child. It's one of the first steps in the adoption process, and it's kind of one part autobiography, one part marketing piece. Personality-wise, I'm very outgoing, warm, and affectionate with a sunny disposition. I'm extraordinarily perceptive and caring and have been known to cry at commercials. I was taught to be open and honest. I'm working with a domestic adoption agency, and they'll pass my letter along to these women who have chosen to place their baby with another family. As you may know, I'm single. 
Unfortunately, now that I feel like I could be the best wife and mother yet, it's harder than ever to meet Mr. Wright. The upside to this, however, is that your child will be my number one priority. I want you to know that I will love and cherish him or her with all my heart. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're going to get started. The state of Illinois requires me to take parenting classes before I can adopt. Because I'm open to a child of any race, especially because the waiting period can be much shorter for babies of color. My agency suggested this series of seminars on transracial adoption led by biracial women. My name is Michelle M. Hughes. I'm an adoption attorney. The workshops that we're doing right now, the primary purpose, I joke, it's basically training white people to raise kids of color. The fact is, there are so many babies of color in this country that are not being adopted, agencies actually make the fees more affordable to try to find a home for these babies. There's frankly a supply and demand issue. There's just not enough parents stepping up to the plate to adopt African-American children. Consequently, it means that agencies discount these children in order to get them placed. The room is filled with mostly white people. And when you first walk in, there's a um, little um, container of beads of different colors, and there are questions asking you, pick a bead that corresponds to the answer to each question. And the questions are, what color are most of the people in your neighborhood? What color are most people you work with? The bead exercise is to get people in a place where they're willing to listen. Because I think a lot of people walk into the room thinking, a baby's a baby, and it doesn't make a difference. And love will cure all. I feel like I probably have more friends of color than most white people that I know. <laughs> but um, when I look at my bag, it is very lily white. This is a fairly alienating experience to, to sort of come into as the first thing that you're l- being introduced to in this workshop. It just felt like, is this something I shouldn't do? This is wrong, that my child's always going to feel lonely? And kind of put me a little bit on the defensive, to tell you the truth. Um, tonight, what we have is four panelists for you. And all of our panelists, our parents, have already transracially adopted. One mother told us about her biological daughter, who's white. And this daughter had a really good playmate down the street, but when the family adopted their first African-American baby, this friend just kind of disappeared. The mother's pretty sure that the parents of this little girl said she couldn't play with their daughter anymore because of their adopted black baby. And we had to explain immediately that family's family, and this is no friend. It's a hard thing. It it will hit you immediately. And then they also told a story about taking their child to an African-American barber. And then at one point, the barber said, you are not the mother of this curly-headed boy. I said, oh, yes, I am. That's my son. No, you are not a mother of a curly-headed black boy. And one of the things I have learned from being up there is that I will never disrespect anyone, never. But I hold my ground. I will not back down either. So I simply said, my son was born 12 weeks early. When he was addicted in the hospital, I'm the one that went every day. I held my son. I've adopted my son. I've taken care of him for five years. I am the mother of a curly-headed black boy. He said, okay, we're friends now. (laughs) That's a whole other aspect that I kind of hadn't really thought much about is like, you know, prejudice from the black community as well. That what are you, you, you white lady, what are you doing with this baby? One of our babies. I, I know where their heart is, but I think it seems a little misdirected because these kids would most likely go into the foster care system. But 
if if you could be sensitive to the child's cultural heritage, then that's a pretty darn good compromise. Okay. Do you open to a child whose birth mother used marijuana at some time during pregnancy? Would consider. In every adoption, there are risks. A child whose birth mother used cocaine at some time during pregnancy? Uh, I'm going to say no to that one. One of the big risks is just not knowing whether your birth mother abused alcohol or drugs during her pregnancy. So I ask about this at my first meeting with my adoption agency. What is the procedure to sort of find out about this birth mother and her drug use? Self-report. Pure self-report, nothing else. We can't do anything else. We can't tax test. Because it's illegal or it's... It's intrusive, for one thing. And, yeah, we can't insist on any treatment or tax testing. I talked to one couple who adopted a child, and they had the child tested and, and were told that the child had some really severe problems with having cocaine in its system. That was through the same agency that I'm working with. And um, they had this heartbreaking decision to make. And here they had the child already living with them and really had bonded with the child. So they realized that this child was going to need a whole lot of special attention, you know, um, just in terms of its basic development. And so they decided they weren't up for that. They just couldn't provide the time and energy that the baby needed. So they they, uh, gave the baby back. That's part of the risk. There is a risk that you take in, in this going into adoption. That's one of them. My name is Suzanne. I live on the north side of Chicago. It's a few weeks later and I'm at another transracial adoption workshop. And I'm Anne. I live on the northwest side of the city of Chicago. There are a couple Um, other single mothers in the group and one woman, Anne, announced that she had been placed with a baby. She'd had a referral for a baby, had met the birth mother, and the baby was due in May. And so that was received with, you know, warm applause and hoo-hahs. And I had lunch with her today. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very happy. That was heartening to me because she was single and actually got a placement pretty quickly after she had signed on with um, the same agency that I'm using. And I just was really anxious to hear the story of what, how her meeting with her birth mother had gone. And she said that, that she thinks at the beginning it's going to be very tough for her, although she wants me to be there when the baby's born. But, wow, and But so far, it's, it's better than I had let myself hope it would be, you know. Oh, Suzanne, this is Sheila Maloney. Less than a week later, I got a call from Sheila Maloney, who's a private adoption attorney and a friend of my family's. I had asked Sheila to keep an eye out for a baby for me. There's something uh, brewing. Something's brewing, I think she said. And I need to talk to you to see if this is something you want to go with. My name is Sheila Maloney. I help my clients run various ads in newspapers to attract birth mothers that might call in on an ad. Something similar to... um, Adoption would be the answer to our prayers. It's like a 60-word or less way to sell yourself. Sheila had said, listen, you know, you should give me your birth mother letter because sometimes I get these women who call and they are, especially if you're open to any race baby, my clients are mostly white and they want mostly white babies. And so I have to refer the women of color away to usually to an agency. So she said, I could just refer them to you. I came across this ad in a paper and I think her name was Sheila. And um, well, I started talking to her. 
but I didn't give like my name or nothing like that. I had gave uh, another name just to see how it was and how it was going to play out. She said, I have a friend who has a child that they cannot keep. And would this family be interested in adopting this baby? She told me a little bit about the situation with the child. The child was about two months old then. This is a full African-American situation. Suzanne has always been very open to that. So I sent her the profile of Suzanne. And when I talked to the birth mother about the fact that this was a single parent that I was going to send her, she said, that's fine. That does not matter to me. I've been around a bunch of single women who didn't done it by themselves without a man's help. It too much didn't put like any doubt there. And race doesn't really matter to me because it's like people are people. So I agreed to meet down in the south suburbs and got the address of a little pancake house. And so drove down and went to the pancake house and um, a woman came striding across the parking lot. She introduced herself as the friend. And as we were going in, she had a couple kids in the car and said that her sister was going to be, came along to watch the kids and she would take her baby inside. So we went inside to this place and sat down and the, the baby was on the same side as me with, uh, on a little, uh, the bench part and she sat on the seat opposite. And I said, now, what is your baby's name? And she said the name of the baby that was to be adopted. And I suddenly realized that this was the baby. And I looked at her, and she kind of smiled a little sheepishly, and she said, it's actually my baby that is being adopted. So here I was looking at this baby that could possibly be my daughter. And it was like angels came out of the clouds and harps started playing. And, um, and you know how babies sometimes will, like, stare really intently at you, and it's, it's probably because they have gas, but, you know... <laughs> This baby was looking right in my eyes. That's what I felt. I just felt like we had a, we had a little moment together. I saw the joy in Suzanne's eyes. Kind of gave me just a little bit hope that she was going to be a good mother and that she needed the opportunity. And um, we proceeded to talk for about two hours. And this woman is just a delightful woman who already has three children. And she's 23, and she just knows that she can't handle this herself. Going from place to place and knowing whether or not you was going to have a place to sleep, that was the major thing that was going on in my head. In my heart, I felt like I would be cheating her and couldn't give everything that I knew a baby should have. I got into my car and just wept. I just cried and cried and cried. Tears of joy. You know, I held this baby. And I realized that I think I've met my daughter. I think I just met my daughter. Since that first meeting with the birth mother, things have been moving really fast. We've spoken on the phone a number of times, and she's having several counseling sessions with a social worker, which is required by law. So I could end up getting this baby in a matter of a couple of weeks. But I'm reminded tonight at my last transracial adoption workshop that the rug can be pulled right out from underneath you. I'm Anne. Um, last month when I was here, I had been picked by a birth mom, and, and I had a fall through after the baby was born. The mother went into labor really early, and so Anne dropped everything, you know, raced down to this small town in Illinois, was there for the birth, literally held the mother's hand through the whole birth experience. And the baby, who I spent like five days in the hospital with, in the nursery with, which was just awesome, got placed with the birth mom's father 
who had wanted the baby all along, had not been supportive of the adoption. And I feel very conflicted about even having this conversation with you because the last thing I want to do is, like, take away from what should be really, like, an exciting, fun time. Right. And it did take the wind out of my sails a little bit. I mean, I did kind of take a step back and go, whoa, this could happen, and I need to sort of keep this in the back of my head. Well, good luck. Thanks. And stay in touch. Okay. I feel hopeful and, and excited for you. Thanks. There are a couple of things that worry me about my situation. The birth mother's mom doesn't know her daughter's plans for the baby, and they all live together. We don't have such a great open relationship to the point to well. I would actually talk to her, you know, because she's already going through stuff herself. She's not that parent that you can say, do you understand what I'm going through? This really concerns me because there's the specter in my mind that the mother will figure it out and try to talk her out of it. The other thing that's really keeping me up nights is that the birth mother hasn't been able to get me the medical records for the baby yet. The birth mother has actually already signed temporary custody papers, which means I could essentially take the baby at any time, which she actually seems really anxious for me to do. It's really tempting, but my gut says to wait until I get the medical records to make sure the baby doesn't have any physical or developmental problems. This is something that is profoundly personal for me. I'm Mary, Suzanne's mother. With two of my children, there were problems at the time of birth which resulted in handicaps, one severe handicap. And I I know what that can mean to a family and to a mother. Suzanne just took on chores that a child her age wouldn't normally take on. She looked after the next one in line and worried about the, the other children. And I just feel like I've kind of paid my like universal karmic dues in that regard. And um, it's just it's a lot of extra time and energy and money that, especially right now as a single person, I don't think I have and I don't think I am equipped for. I'm painfully aware that this adoption could fall through, but there's also a really good chance that I could have a baby in a couple of weeks. When I think about the fact that most women have about nine months to feather their nest, I decide I better get cracking. Good evening, Target guests. Can a guest of a black Nissan Sentra... Well, we're here at Target, my mom and I, because we're going to look at some baby things. You want to go over here first, or do you want to? what do you want to look at first? This is kind of the crash course in baby preparation. A car seat, crib, a gate. First of all, you know, I had to share all my decisions and opinions with my mother, um, who I love, but, you know, she's my mother. And uh, maybe a changing table? Ah, you don't need that. Oh, boy, here we go. This will be fun. First of all, (laughs) it takes up space. And I got through all you kids without one of those things. You just change them on the bed. Yeah, but then you got to bend over and hurt your back. Your back's that weak. I don't know if you should have this baby. Mom, whose baby is it? Well, I don't... Okay. Mom, you're just going to have a lot of opinions. I can tell already. You you don't want my opinion. Is that right? (laughs) You can give me opinion, but don't give me it as if it's fact. Okay, I'll say if it were me, if it were I. Yeah. If it were me. (laughs) If it were... If it it was me. It was me. If it were me. If it were me. Can I ask you where something is? Sure. The, s- the snugglies, you know, that you carry the baby on your oh. front? 
My favorite purchase was uh, the purchase of a little baby carrier sling that you, that you carry on yourself. It was kind of funny because my mother zeroed in on one right from the start. She said, this one looks like the best one. It looks soft and I think maybe just to defy her, I had to go through all the other ones first. This is nice. It's pretty simple, right? Yeah, but it's just nylon-y stuff. They're all, Mom, I think they're all nylon. They're gonna be, I don't think this one is. And then it turned out, she was right. Easier to clean. Imagine that, too. my mother was right. Mom, I hate to say it, but you were right. Oh, I know, it hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> and that also feels really practical and personal. Like, I'm gonna be taking that with me to go get that baby. I could picture a baby in there, but I don't, you know, it's the kind of thing that I don't wanna do because things could happen. There's still a chance that this this might not happen. But when I got to the store, I, I got sort of seeing all the stuff. Something clicked in about, you know, that this is really happening, and I got really excited. And I think my mother is still very concerned about protecting me and protecting herself. You know, just for fun now, Mom, can we just have the joy of this? Because there will be a baby. So you're kind of killing the joy by kind of keeps reminding me that it might not happen. Well, I guess I'm trying to... Um... Just, just, just don't... I understand what you're doing, and I understand you, and I know you well, but for me, it's more fun to be excited about this. Well, I'm excited. There's no question about that. There will be a child. So we're, we're, we're buying this for my baby. Okay, just, yeah. just go with that. Work with that. Well, for the past, I'd say, almost week, we've been waiting for the birth mom to provide uh, medical records on the baby and anything that she had on herself about her prenatal care. And I just found out just yesterday that she had all the records and she read them over the phone to me and all the correct tests were negative for, for both herself and the baby. And that was a big relief. So I'm on my way. I'm on my way to go pick up my daughter. I have my, my mom and I, and we're taking my mom's car because um, I'm not sure why we're taking my mom's car. I wouldn't let my granddaughter ride in a car like yours. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hello. Hi. Party four? We're actually going to have five. We're meeting five? one more person, yeah. We're at the Olive Garden, and um, we're in the suburbs. And the pickings were slim. I called churches to see if any churches were open in the evening in the area, and none were. And she didn't want to do it at her house, of course, because her family was there. So where do you do something like this, you know? And it was either um, an Applebee's or an Olive Garden. And I, I opted for the exotic Olive Garden. <laughs> so that's where we are. Maybe she'll always love Italian music because of that. And I'm just waiting for um, the birth mom to, to show up. She called ahead and said that she was running a little bit late. And we waited and waited. And I couldn't say anything to Suzanne, but my mind was saying, she's not going to come. She's not going to come. So I waited in the vestibule, which was the longest 15 minutes <laughs> I've waited in a while. And then she called me. Hello. She actually called from the parking lot, said she was there. Oh, good. So I went out okay. and met her, and she was with her sister. And she had the baby, of course. And um, went out and gave her a hug. How are you? How you doing? <laughs> uh, she seemed like what I had come to know, which was a very sort of poised and relaxed and gentle, easygoing woman. She didn't seem nervous to me. 
but she's she's kind of got this sort of imperturbable way about her. I think it's protection, you know. I think she's it's just how she copes. I was nervous though, really, really tense, really nervous. But it wasn't like a, a bad type of emotion. It was more like, you know, like a happy one. Like I knew she was in the right place. All right, how's everybody? <laughs> Good. My name is Christy. I'm going to be your server. Hi there. Hi. We sat down at the table, and um, the baby was facing the birth mom, so I couldn't really see the baby. She was almost like a no man's zone. <laughs> she didn't belong, really, to either mother. So we were eating, and her phone rang, and she answered it, and it was her mother asking her if she could take her to work because her car had broken down. But you landed me, and I said I had to leave. Do you have to leave? Do you really? I had to go drop my mom off at work. Oh. So now we were sort of forced to address what we were all there for, which was to give this baby to me. Are you okay about this? Oh, yeah. I'm fascinated by somebody who has been, you know, pretty unemotional about it, even on the, on the moment that she handed the baby to me. You want to give her a little kiss? Yeah. I think she kissed her and whispered something. You know, I, I kind of looked away. I wanted it to be a private moment for her in a very public place. With By then, the whole restaurant was, I think, aware of what was happening. I guess, you know, at that point, I had more feelings for the mother and what she was leaving behind than I did for Suzanne and what she was being given. My heart was pounding. Everything was just magnified in that moment because I just... I just knew what was happening. Well, I'll talk to you later, okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll be in. We'll talk to you this week. Okay. And in her kind of typical matter-of-fact way, you know, gathered her things together, and I gave her a, a one last hug. Uh, and then they got up and walked out, left the baby there, and never turned around. And I just thought, oh, what a brave thing to do, uh, to love a baby enough to to turn it over to someone who could care for it better. And there I was with my baby. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I just can't believe it. Or I should say the baby at the time. I don't think it felt like my baby, you know. <sighs> and um, I said, Mom, do you want to hold her? It was the first time my mom had gotten to see the baby. I hadn't thought about what the baby would look like because that was so secondary to the baby itself. But then I saw this baby with these enormous eyes and this beautiful little mouth. And I think I worried more than ever that this mother could never give up this baby. I think I waited a long time for that mother to turn around and come back in and say she had changed her mind. And then a man came from across the way, a a big African-American guy came over and... uh, extended his hand and said, congratulations, God bless you, congratulations, I wish you the best of luck. God bless you, you and my prayers. Thank you so much. It just seemed like sort of a little visit from a little angel or something, you know, just giving me the blessings. I've just pictured myself walking into the house with her, you know, saying this is our house. This is where we're going to live. I've been waiting for you. Uh, I'm going to show her her room. 
cool clothes you have already. The guy bought this in Mexico. And you know, when you bought that net sweater, I just thought, oh, you know, she's dreaming. Bought <laughs> I was dreaming. And it's come true. Oh, you're a lucky baby. You're going to be the belle of the ball. I'm so lucky. You know, everyone, I just wanted to say something quickly. Um, I just officially wanted to say congratulations to Suzanne, and we're so happy for you. Since we came home, we have just been heaped with love and support. My friends gave us a wonderful shower, and then my neighbors surprised us with one, too. And welcome to baby Loretta. Naming her after my beloved grandmother, Loretta. Pretty sure I'm going to keep the middle name as the, the name she was given by her birth mom as a way to honor her origins. You're so lucky to have such a great and cool and fun mom, and you're going to love it on our street. I just feel very supported, and that's important to me, you know? As a single mom and as someone who's adopted a little African-American baby, too, it's, it just all feels really nice. You guys, you have no idea what this sort of solid foundation means to me. It really it means a lot. It takes the village, Suzanne. <laughs> it does. Loretta and I visit her birth mother regularly, but we both agree that when Loretta reaches an age where this becomes confusing, we'll have to reevaluate. I know for sure that we'll always be in close contact. And once I think Loretta is mature enough to understand it all, her relationship with her birth mother will really be up to her. In the meantime, I asked the birth mother to answer some questions about herself and the choice she made, so that regardless of what happens, Loretta will have one more way to understand how it all came to be. So, speaking as Loretta, mm -hmm. where was I living when I was born? In Chicago. And do I have brothers and sisters? Yes. How old are they? Six, four, and two. Um, what are your dreams for me in my life? It's a lot of dreams, actually, to see you grow up to be the best you can be. But in all, don't dislike me for the decision that I made. And you know she won't, because you know that I'm going to tell her all about that. I have to give you a hug. As we hugged, the microphone I was wearing picked up the sound of a heartbeat. I don't know whose heart it was, but it doesn't really matter. Loretta is in both of our hearts. That documentary is called Dear Birth Mother. It was produced in 2005 by Long Haul Productions, the production company of Elizabeth Meister and Dan Collison. And I implore you to listen to their other stories. I've put a link to Long Haul at transom.org. I wrote to Dan and Elizabeth and asked for an update on Suzanne and family. Unfortunately, I didn't hear from them before I recorded this. But 10 years ago, when I first featured Dear Birth Mother, they told me that in the years after they made the doc, that both mom and daughter were flourishing. And there's now a dad. Suzanne found her Mr. Wright, and they married in 2007. As for me and my birth mother, Sherry, well, after we met in 2013, we remained in regular contact. Phone calls, texts, emails, Facebook messages. Every time we talked, she showered me with love. You're so smart. You're so handsome. It was kind of over the top. 
I wanted to ask her to stop, but at the same time, you know, how often does that happen? But besides, it felt like for decades she'd been holding on to a mountain of feelings for a son she never knew, and now she could let them all out. I'm not a religious person, but I really felt blessed by Sherry. We also visited together several times. I flew to see her in Florida. She came up to see me on Cape Cod. We even drove around where I grew up. She saw the house I lived in, the neighborhood, and the beach and salt marsh I romped in as a kid. I was really glad we did that, because now she had a picture of the childhood I had, the childhood she gave me. I think it was healing for her, and I'm pretty sure she felt less guilty. I saw her one last time in September. Her health was failing, and she was exhibiting signs of dementia. And I'm sorry to say that Sherry died in November. She was 80 years old. While I said everything I wanted to say to her, how much I loved her and how grateful I am she welcomed me into her life, there's one more thing I'd like to say. Dear birth mom, you were right. There was more to say, wasn't there? A lot more. And we shared so much. I'm so thankful for our 10 years, but I can't let another day go by without saying these words again. Yes, I'm your son, Sherry. There is no doubt, and I love you. If you're interested in more adoption stories, there's one in particular I'd like to point you to that's really quite good, Inside the Adoption Circle. It was produced by Transom's Vicki Merrick and my partner, Samantha Brown. Be sure to listen over at transom.org. There's also a book I recommend, too. It's by Anne Fessler, and it's called The Girls Who Went Away. It's the story of young, unmarried women in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s who became pregnant and were shunned by families who sent them to homes for unwed mothers. It's gut-wrenching, a really tough read, but it left me feeling even more in awe of moms, especially the two I had. Sherry Nielsen, my first mom, and Barbara Rosenthal, my mom who raised me. This is Sound School, the backstory to great audio storytelling. It's edited by Genevieve Sponsler and Jay Allison at PRX and Transom, respectively. Many thanks to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. transom.org.